HVAC 360, episode number 65, Radiant Cooling. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of HVAC 360. I am your host, Matt Nelson. This week, we're going to be talking about radiant cooling. Um, depending on where you are in the world, you might be a little bit more familiar with radiant heating than radiant cooling, but uh, it kind of acts the same. Uh, this week, we got a, uh, a special guest for you. He's a distinguished lecturer with Ashray, but uh, let's see, Devin Abalon. Got that name, and uh, he uh, he works for Upanor, but is uh, he works a, a lot with Ashray and their Radiant Cooling uh, Technical Subcommittee uh, or Technical Committee for Radiant Cooling. So he's a, a really great resource, and I hope you learn a lot from him. Uh, but before we cut to the episode, I'd like to have and thank our sponsor, who is the Building Commissioning Association. If you're involved in the building commissioning at all, obviously the Building Commissioning Association is the place to be. Uh, if you want, uh, actually this week is going to be at our national conference, May 6th through the 8th. Uh, so if you uh, are listening to this after the fact, uh, you got to wait till next year. So uh, get your plans, get it on your schedule already, and, and mark that out. So uh, with that, we have also uh, a couple of things. Uh, their spring webinar series is also taking place. Uh, they got two left, so you can catch either one of these. Uh, the first one coming up on May 15th is going to be is controls loop tuning and night setback really that hard. Uh, with uh, June 19th being commissioning of grounding system for mission-critical facilities. So if either of those are topics that align with what you're doing, uh, you can go to their website, bcxa.org. That's bcxa.org. And find out more about them. Uh, Or even if you just want to join BCA, BCA, uh, that is available, uh, and more information is there on the website for you to do that as well. All right, thanks again to the BCA BCA for sponsoring HVAC 360. And with that, we will cut to the tape with Devin Abalon. All right, we're here with Devin Abalon, who is the uh, business development manager for commercial sales for uh, Upanor. How are you doing, Devin? Great, great. Hey, thanks for being on here. So uh, I guess let me just start off. I always like to find out a little bit about who we're talking to. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your background? Okay, sure. Um, I'm a graduate engineer. Uh, got my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from UC Santa Barbara. Uh, started my career as a consulting engineer in Phoenix, uh, first at uh, Peterson Associates and then over to LSW Engineers. And I, I ended up moving over to San Diego where I managed their uh, California operations for, for a number of years, um, really with a focus on high-efficiency system design. So um, one thing, you know, when I was in Phoenix, I had the opportunity, I, I worked with this, uh, this young, bright engineer uh, by the name of Julius Atkins, and, and he ended up leaving uh, consulting. He went back east, joined a manufacturer, and he was promoting radiant cooling. Um, and this is, you know, this was probably 12, 13 years ago, and I remember he used to always He'd call me up and he'd, you know, he'd ask, you know, hey, what kind of projects are you working on? I think radiant cooling would be a great application here. And, I, and you know, sort of as a, as a conservative, uh, somewhat gun-shy engineer, I'd, I'd push back with, you know, objections, my reservations, you know, talking about things like condensation, controllability. But 
but you know, he kept at it over time, really became a believer in radiant cooling. He did a lot of research, you know, read a lot of the case studies, and I thought, yeah, he's, you know, this actually is pretty neat. This, this really works. And so about four years ago, uh, we were talking, and, and at that time, I kind of decided to make a career change. I, that's when I, I joined Upinor, a uh, manufacturer he was working for at the time, and, and now I've got this uh, opportunity I work very closely with engineers, with building owners, with contractors throughout the country on really some of these some, some really amazing projects incorporating radiant cooling as part of an energy-efficient design strategy. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to imagine that, that you know, your, your standard run-of-the-mill job isn't using radiant cooling, but so you, you, you probably see some pretty neat, uh, pretty neat stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. Typically, you know, projects where they're really focusing on high efficiency, um, you know, kind of thinking out of the box and, and, and where they've got challenges such as, you know, high solar gain, things that, that would be very difficult to deal with with a more conventional airside system. So, you know, it, it's not your, your kind of run-of-the-mill, um, you know, we're not slapping rooftop units on the roof all over the place. It's, it's a, it, you know, becomes a, a very creative, a very um, exciting and rewarding process. Now, I mean, if somebody's not familiar with radiant cooling, the term radiant cooling, how would you explain that to them? Well, you know, one of the things I often use, I use an example of, of a cave. And, you know, again, assuming that, that most people um, have been in a cave before, you know, or maybe not a cave, maybe like a, a large stone building, a large cathedral, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine maybe, you know, maybe it's a warm day, the air temperature is high. Uh, but as we move towards the mouth of that cave, as we move into the, into the building, into the cathedral, we, we feel much cooler. Um, even though the air temperature may still be high, uh, we feel cooler, and that's because of all that thermal mass. That mass is actually drawing energy away from our bodies, and that's really kind of the basis of, of radiant cooling. We, we've got a system where we're actively controlling the surface temperatures of the mass around us uh, within this occupied space, and then we're driving heat transfer in one direction or the other to maintain this comfortable environment. Now, I guess most people, when they deal with, uh, you know, radiant technology, at least, you know, from, you know, around here in, in Ohio, they're mostly dealing, it from, dealing with it from uh, the, the angle of uh, the radiant heating. Now, oh, can, sure. can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how those two contrast? Well, they're, they're actually very similar. I mean, obviously, the, the main difference is with, with the hydronic radiant heating system, you know, we're circulating warm water, uh, creating this warm surface and then radiating heat, whereas on a, uh, with a radiant cooling system, we're, we're circulating chilled water um, through the same series of tubes and creating this cooled surface and then absorbing heat. Um, you know, when it comes to the construction details, they're, they're essentially the same. You know, some of the, the differences may be um, your typical on-center spacing for cooling, um, maybe six to nine inch on center for the, for the tubing. Um, whereas with heating, it may be nine to 12 inch on center. You know, there, there are some, um, there's performance, performance differences and then also, you know, kind of your operational parameters. Um, the other thing to note, you know, I guess one of the key things with radiant cooling versus radiant heating is you do have to be aware of dew point. Um, so we can uh, make sure that we avoid condensation. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I think that you're like even like you said in the beginning, moisture is, is one of those things that you know is the big is the big gorilla in the room that uh, people need to. <laughs> no, know. no, no, no one ever brings that up. So, <laughs> so, so I, I guess let let's talk about moisture uh, in 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 sure. the uh, uh, in the air. What what can you just kind of give us a, a kind of a, a back, back sure. to basic kind of uh, uh, overview of, of the moisture? 
Sure, sure. And, you know, I'll tell you, I was joking, but it comes up quite a bit. It's probably, you know, one of the first things that comes up when, when people bring up rating cooling is, oh, what about condensation? How are we going to deal with condensation? Because, obviously, you know, we don't want condensation. We get wet floors. People are slipping. You can run into mold issues with carpet. You can run into um, wood damage on wood floors. So we need to make sure that the system is designed such that we don't get condensation. Um, but you really have to, you know, kind of take a few steps back and ask yourself, when, when would condensation occur? And condensation is going to occur when the surface temperature drops below the dew point. So if you take a, take a look, you know, not, not even with radiant cooling per se, but when you look at your total design um, for the built environment, you're looking at a number of other factors. And as you look at um, ASHRAE Standard 55 um, for, uh, you know, the thermal environmental conditions for human occupancy, um, you're trying to design a space where, you know, let's talk in terms of relative humidity, you're trying to manage the space between 30 to 60 percent relative humidity, um, depending on your temperature. Um, that may relate on the high end to a dew point on the order of, I don't know, 56, 58, maybe 60 degrees. Um, and then you look at uh, that same document, ASHRAE 55, where it's going to tell you that your floor surface temperature, you never want that to be colder than about 66, 68 degrees, um, just because people will feel uncomfortable if they're walking on a cold floor. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you look at, at really how you're designing the entire system, you see right away that um, – a properly designed radiant cooling system that, that's, that's operating properly, um, you're, you're never going to even come close to what that dew point temperature is. Um, we've seen, you know, certainly issues in the past where radiant cooling systems have, have caused condensation. Um, a lot of that had to do with, you know, maybe there were older systems where we either didn't have the understanding of how to control for moisture or um, just didn't, you know, didn't have the right controls in place. And so now we're seeing, um, we're really seeing that that uh, that issue. Not, I don't want to say go away, but it's really not not becoming much of an issue at all because the systems are being designed properly and they're controlled properly. Now, I mean, I, I guess you you so. In essence, when you when you take a look at the building, your your goal with the radiant cooling system is not moisture control per se. That's going to be no, absolutely not. Yeah, that's that's that, true. That's going to be handled by a completely separate system, usually like a dedicated outside air system. Yes. Yeah, and, and you and you know you, you look at, at some of the studies that have been, that have been done. Um, you know, Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, the Pacific Northwest National Lab studies. Um, they all you know when we, we talk about radiant cooling as a system, it's it's commonly coupled with you know as you mentioned dedicated outside air systems um, because a radiant cooling system is, is only going to address uh, sensible load. Um, so you're going to need a secondary system. You're always going to need a secondary system to, to provide Dakota-required ventilation. Um, but now the secondary system, the dedicated outside air, um, does a very nice job at, you know, kind of decoupling the ventilation from the sensible load, and then it gives you that moisture control as well Excellent. for the latent loads. Now, I guess what are what are some of the uh, you know getting getting more into the the design side? I guess what are some of the uh, the good applications for this technology? Um, well. Oh, you know, the capacity of the system is going to be based on surface area. Um, you know, however, whatever surface area you have, that's going to, to give you your capacity. And so um, certainly, you know, when you start looking at large open areas, um, you know, large lobbies, uh, you know, 
Bangkok Airport in Thailand comes to mind as a good example. Um, Pier 15 Exploratorium, it's a, it's a large museum in San Francisco, actually just opened a couple of weeks ago. Um, those are those are good examples because you know they're large open areas that they're they're relatively easy to manage. But having said that, you know we're actually seeing the biggest growth in radiant cooling in um, schools and offices. Um, Manitoba Hydro Place in, in Winnipeg, is a, that's a great example. Um, NREL's Research Support Facility, I think, which I think you, you did, you featured in one of your podcasts last year with uh, Paul Torsolini. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so that's another example, you know, an office, office application. You know, we're, we're continuing, continuing to see this trend in, in high performance, you know, net zero, sustainable buildings uh, where they're targeting these high levels of lead, you know, gold, platinum, and, and engineers are looking at radiant cooling as part of that energy-efficient design solution. So we're really seeing it, you know, in, in that uh, right now more than, more than in other areas. No, I guess what what makes it? I'm just curious. What what makes it so energy efficient? I mean, well, it's the fact that that what we're able to do is is we're taking care of um, sensible load, um, basically by using water. We're essentially moving water uh, rather than moving air, and and because the heat transfer capacity of water is so much greater than that of air, we're able to to basically drive that heat transfer with essentially you know small circulators. You know, small horsepower pumps rather than large horsepower fan motors. Mm. That that's one of the one of the the key benefits. There are other benefits um, in terms of being able to manage um, the comfort within a space at at higher or lower set points and, and other things like that. That that really um, lend to that energy efficiency. Now, I mean, obviously, this is not necessarily a magic bullet. What what kind of you know what areas are, are bad for, uh, you know, what, what, what doesn't make a good application for this? Okay. Um, if, if you're in an area, and, you know, we, we talked about condensation mm-hmm. and humidity. I actually uh, alluded to a project at Bangkok Airport, which is in a very humid environment. But if you are in a humid environment where you're not in a position where you could actively manage and control the indoor relative humidity within the space, then what happens is you're, you're really forced to limit yourself in order to avoid condensation. So, you know, say you're designing a project, uh, you know, I don't know, Miami, for instance, and you know that the envelope's really not going to be very tight, um, then rain and cooling is probably not going to be a very good application there. Um, if you've got a project, a building that has very high load densities, very high sensible load densities, let's say something like a data center, um, will radiant cooling work? Yes, it will work, but the percentage of load that it's able to offset versus the supplemental airside system that's going to be required is probably going to be relatively small. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may not make too much sense. And then thirdly, I, I think of, of, of buildings, you know, maybe uh, retail pads where they anticipate a high level of turnover. Um, you know, when you've got a radiant an in-slab rating system, you've got tubing embedded into that slab, and so really doesn't give you much opportunity to react to um, a high level of, of, you know, tenant improvements or reworks. Um, there are instances, you know, there are ways you can work around that, but, um, again, it's probably, you know, if you're, you're anticipating a high level of turnover, it's probably, it may not be the best fit. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously systems that, you know, buildings that are going to stay relatively consistent that, that may be, you know, slated for, you know, being around for 50 or 100 years, that's, you know, that's more the... Yes, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, exactly. It's, uh, now, I, I guess you talked about being in the slab. 
Um, uh-huh. Is that the primary kind of installation that you see is, is kind of under slab uh, tubing or, or what kind of different options are out there uh, for, for radiant cooling? There, there are other options. You know, we see the in-slab, and, and the slab can be installed either as a, a floor slab or even as a ceiling slab. Um, but there are other options. You know, there are um, radiant ceiling panels that are available. Um, that, it's a, you know, it's a, a great application there. Uh, very quick response. Um, tend to have higher cost per square foot, but it, but it is very good for, for retrofit applications or, or ceiling applications where perhaps the architect doesn't want to see um, an exposed deck. Um, so the, you know there are there are kind of um, some pros and cons between between both of the systems. Um, the in slab systems we see um, have more um, you know, there's more interest in them um, because you're able to take care of kind of that flywheel effect that you get with that large thermal mass. Now, are, are most of the uh, the slabs that you see uh, exposed like you're kind of referencing? Most of them are, you know, the, the one thing to, to, to note, you know, actually that's one thing I forgot to mention. Uh, when you were, we were talking about applications where radiant cooling doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. if you've got an a installation where um, they anticipate having, you know, maybe thick carpet, um, then any type of floor covering is, is going to have an R value associated with it. It's going to diminish that, that, um, that rating effect. And so... Um, in most cases, yes, we, we see um, either bare concrete, um, you know, certainly tile or uh, terrazzo. Mm-hmm. Um, those finishes um, still have, you know, very conductive and, and very uh, work very well with radiant systems. When it comes to ceilings, um, either bare concrete deck or bare metal deck is usually what we see. Um, don't see, you know, if, if you were to put, again, if, if the architect, wants to have acoustic ceiling tiles, that's really going to, you know, it's not only going to have, you know, the, the R value associated with it, but then you're also going to have that, that air barrier as well. So, um, yeah, in most cases, it's a, you know, it's a bare, uh, hard surface. Now, I, I guess what, what sort of components are you talking about when you say, okay, you know, I mean, obviously we get the, we get the tubing, um, you know, so, so what other products go along with the, the radiant cooling system? Well, there's the tubing itself. And um, which is which is going to be a, a plastic, the, correct? Yeah, you know, you look historically, you know, radiant heating systems were done in copper, but now the industry has really gone towards um, towards the the cross-linked polyethylene or, or PEX, and mm-hmm. there there are a lot of there are different types of PEX, you know, PEX A, B, and C. Um, but the one thing that's really important is that when the engineer specifies it, they they specify it. Uh, with an oxygen diffusion barrier. Um, so that, that's one of the key things as far as the, the PEX goes when we've got a closed-loop uh, radiant system. Um, you know, in terms of other components, um, the, the tubing would come out of the slab and connect them to, uh, to manifolds. And there, there are a lot of different options when it comes to the manifolds. You know, there, there are uh, metallic options. You know, brass and stainless steel are very common in the industry. Um, we are seeing the industry look more towards um, engineered polymer offerings as well, and you know there's a, there's this notion I think among engineers that 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 metal is is better than plastic, but as we start looking at the performance, the temperature, pressure ratings, the cost, um, the engineered polymer options become very viable alternatives. Um, the benefit for a rating cooling system, of course, is the fact that with a lower conductivity, that uh, that polymer manifold is going to be less susceptible to um, to sweating. Mm, gotcha. Now I. I, and and then, I oh. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, and then, you know, we talked about the tubing, the manifolds, and then one of the key components, of course, is going to be the controls. Um, 
And um, a lot of times people, you know, they may, they may shy away from radiant, especially radiant cooling, thinking that controls can be overly complex. Uh, but in reality, um, it's, it's relatively straightforward. I think, you know, one can make the argument that, um, you know, with any type of system, especially in a high-performance building application, um, you really want to make sure you've got the controls dialed in properly. Um, if it's not controlled properly, obviously it's not going to perform to um, neither the engineers nor the, uh, the owner's expectations. Um, so controls are very important uh, part of that equation as well. Now, I mean, as far as I'm, and I'm just kind of uh, thinking off the top of my head here, you know, if you had a scenario where you had an existing, you know, floor slab and you covered it with radiant, you know, is is there a lot of uh, flexibility as far as, you know, if you needed more or less cooling? You know, I mean, obviously the, you know, engineers' calculations only go so far. So sure. does there, is there a lot of flexibility there as far as flow goes? Or, I mean, is that is that primarily how it's handled? Yeah, there there is some flexibility. I mean, certainly from the design perspective, as you look at your your on center spacing, that's going to have a lot to do with what kind of capacity you're able to to run. Also, the diameter of the tubing that you're running. Um, you know, commonly in commercial applications, you see anywhere from half inch to five eighths inch to three quarter inch diameter tubing. Those are certainly things that that you know you can't change after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Aside from, from that, um, what you'd be able to change it is uh, you can drop the temperature um, of the supply, the supply water that you're circulating through there. Um, as long as, you know, obviously you want to be careful um, with your, um, so you don't uh, run into to condensation issues, um, and you can increase flow. Um, recognizing that, you know, you may run into instances now where you possibly have to upsize the pump because of the, the pressure loss through the, through the tubing. Gotcha. Now, I mean, and, and, and I guess from, from my standpoint, you know, sizing, laying out the tubing, is, is that something that uh, typically you, uh, you help with? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's something, you know, as an engineer is laying out a system, um, we provide a, a lot of um, support in terms of, of zoning, um, locating manifolds and, and sizing, you know, sizing the loops. Um, I think a lot of times, though, engineers kind of get caught up in, in what I call kind of the squiggly lines. <laughs> you know, if you've seen a radiant loop layout on a set of plans, um, it's, a, it's a rather complex kind of zigzag back and forth pattern on, on the tubing. Um, and a lot of times the engineers, you know, when they're putting together the, the construction documents, they, they get kind of hung up on, on making sure that those are exactly right. And what we're seeing more and more of, though, is that engineers kind of going away from that. Um, as, as much as we'd like to, uh, to, to, to uh, ignore the fact, um, contractors, you know, typically they're not going to install based, you know, strictly off of construction documents. They're going to be installing off of shop drawings. Right. And show... And, and so uh, what's usually best, because it is rather time-consuming to draw those, those squiggly lines, is that um, we see engineers where they'll take their plans and kind of dash out uh, radiant zones and then have a corresponding manifold schedule that, that gives it kind of a, a performance, performance-based, take a performance-based approach to how to design that system, and then leaving it up to the contractor and the manufacturer to, to come up with the actual shop drawings. Um, we found that that's, you know, becomes, you know, it's a much easier for, for the engineer. They don't have to worry about, you know, drawing all those lines and making sure all the loop lengths are, are equal. And, um, you know, it just helps the process along. Now, as far as as far as as laying things out and the the different components, obviously, you know, I would think that insulation uh, to to actually promote the you know the 
the radiant cooling effect kind of going in the right direction um, has to be has to be a part of it. Is that is that true? Yeah, I mean, insulation is important. Certainly for slab-on grade installations, um, you'd want to have your edge insulation, um, sometimes perimeter insulation. It's it you know ground conditions are, are often very difficult to predict, especially if you've got if you're close to the uh, the water table. Um, when it comes to suspended slabs. Um, it is, insulation is important in order to, to make sure that we're driving the heat transfer in the right direction. Um, having said that, though, that, you know, one of the common strategies, and this is, this is more common in Europe, is to take um, what's called a, a TABS approach or a thermoactivated building system approach where you're actually uh, installing the slabs with no insulation. Um, and we see some of that. You know, we've seen some of that um, in the United States, um, David Brower Center, for instance, comes to mind, where there is no insulation, there's no break, thermal break between, um, you know, the first or second floor. And so what you're essentially doing is you're creating a slab, this thermal mass, um, where you're driving the temperature, so you're, you're in cooling, and it acts as a radiant ceiling on one floor and then potentially a radiant floor on the floor above. Um, hmm. Now, you know, you may one of the, the first objections you know you hear is well you're not, now you're losing kind of that floor to floor controllability mm-hmm. you know you're, you're unable to zone on a floor by floor basis but the idea is that if you've got you know a typical office building and it's let's say it's a multi story office building um, as long as you know all all the functions within that you know within that building are relatively the same if the building's going to be in cooling you know all the floors are going to be in cooling. And so um, you see that approach. That very, it's actually fairly common in Europe, where they're they're actually uh, taking advantage of that entire thermal mass and, and really cooling the building as a whole, rather than you know doing it each each floor zone by zone. So in that case, um, they they actually don't have the insulation in there. Okay, gotcha. Now, I guess what what are some of the other common things that 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 you see going wrong with uh, engineers laying out the system? I mean, where where are the where are the trouble spots? Well, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the common issues that come up um, really have to do with, with just the industry as a whole, kind of the, the lack of, I don't want to say lack of familiarity, but they, we just don't have as much experience as we do with, with the more conventional airside systems. And so mm-hmm. um, th- there are some, some, certainly some best practices that are available, a um, number of resources that are available that, that can help engineers, you know, kind of guide them in the right direction, uh, certainly uh, support from manufacturers um, that's available as well. Uh, but some of the common problems we see is, um, you know, first off, uh, not not really being able to, to quantify or understand um, what the operating conditions need to be in order to, to uh, satisfy a certain load. Um, you know, we talk about um, what, what you can expect from a rating cooling system, and what we'll talk you know, let's say a floor application with bare concrete, you may be looking at, you know, 12 to 14 BTU per square foot. And that's really driven by um, the minimum sem- surface temperature that ASHRAE recommends. Um, you know, sometimes an engineer will say, well, you know, I need more than that. And so that they'll specify, um, you know, 20, 30 BTU per square foot. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're running into a condition where the, the water temps are, are too low. We, we could run into surface condensation issues. Um, the floor temperature could get, you know, uncomfortably cold, things like that. And so um, those are just some of the, the issues that, that, that sometimes come up. Um, it's just really more of a, just a lack of understanding on, on how the system should, should be laid out. Mm-hmm. Now, getting back to the, uh, the, the controls of, of these systems, 
is it is it just simply a uh, like a control valve kind of situation where you're just modulating the temperature based on a, a thermostat, or how are they how are they typically controlled? Yeah, there there are a couple of different ways to do it. You know, um, most of the radiant cooling systems, and many of the radiant cooling systems that we see are actually combination heating cooling systems. So you're using the same series of tubes both for heating and cooling, and so it gets a you know that adds a little bit of, of complexity to it. So um, you're right, you know, essentially we've got um, a thermostat, um, a room temperature sensor that, that, that's monitoring how far we are from set point. Um, typically we'll have a slab temperature sensor so we can monitor what the slab temp is. Usually that's used for high-low limit control so the slab doesn't get too hot or too cold. Um, and then we're, we're basically, you know, as we're calculating uh, indoor relative humidity, or monitoring in our relative humidity while calculating dew point. And, and really the, what the control system is trying to do is it's trying to optimize the, the system so that we're, it's supplying the right supply water temperature to maximize the effectiveness of that slab while ensuring that we don't get too cold, we don't cause surface condensation. Um, so it's typically, you know, it, it's uh, sometimes it, it sounds a little complex, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's it's a number of temperature sensors, uh, indoor relative humidity sensor, and slab sensor all working together to, to, to manage that slab. Okay. Now, I, I guess I, I have to ask the question, if you have all those different components, it, it, is it, you know, uh, you know a, a single controller from the controls, you know, controls contractor that's uh, kind of, uh, you know, figuring these things out, or is all those sensors separately going back to a building automation system typically? Um, you know, or or do you have some sort of special component that integrates the the, the couple different uh, pieces and then sends it back? You know, there have been some developments um, within the industry, you know, to have this sort of um, um, single point connection for the uh, for the radiant system. But but uh, the most of the systems we see are, are all handled, you know, just as you had mentioned through the through the MCS contractor, um, looking at each of the different points. Um, Taking, you know, monitoring each of the points separately, and then bring that all back to the front end. Okay, right. Now, uh, you know, g- going to the the construction side of things, how well? I mean, what, what's I guess what's your what's your take, and how well the uh, um, contractors are, you know, handling this? Um, well, you know, it it varies quite a bit from region to region. I mean, obviously, um, you know, like where you're at, uh, we've got uh, you know cold weather. Um, the rate where radiant heating is, is much more prevalent, the contractors do have a good understanding of how to install the systems, you know, what, what they need to do in order to, to get it laid out properly. Um, warmer climates, you know, where, where radiant heating really, you know, is not used, um, we've got certainly there are a number of contractors who, who have, have you know, become uh, much more proficient at installing it. Um, what we're seeing is, is as the number of projects, you know, grow, as we're seeing more and more radiant cooling installations go in, uh, more and more contractors are getting that experience, and, and um, it, it's continuing to improve. But, but certainly, you know, th- that's one of the one of the issues um, when it comes to to cost. And that you know, we haven't really touched on cost, but but um, the, the big you know kind of variable when you start looking at the cost of a radiant system is going to be in that labor. And when you've got contractors, you know, in certain areas where they just don't have that familiarity, that level of familiarity with how to install the systems, certainly they're going to protect themselves and, and you know, have, a, um, have their labor covered. And that's why we see some of the, the you know, the great variances in, in, in pricing. So um, I guess, you know, 
would I say that it's the, the, the I guess the level of um, competency within um, contractors throughout the country is high, probably not very high, but uh, it it's continues to improve. And and I guess what what sort of training is available for them if you know if they were interested in learning more about this? I mean, is this kind of you know, hey, you you know how to you know you know lay this tubing and and you take mm-hmm. you know you just learn by you know by trial and error, or are there some sort of you know, preparatory classes that, you know, a contractor could send a couple of guys to to figure this sure. out. Yeah, there, there are there are uh, a number of training opportunities out there. Um, you know, RPA, the Radiant Professionals Alliance, uh, they have they have training. Um, most of the training uh, is done through through manufacturers. You know, we have a training facility in Apple Valley, uh, Minnesota, uh, do a lot of factory training and do a lot of on-site training as well. Um, what what we, we see a lot of, especially with contractors who, um, who, you know, who haven't installed or don't have a lot of experience installing is, is um, kind of a, a pre-construction training where all the contractors get certified. They, they understand the system. It's important. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's not a very difficult system to install, but certainly uh, they need to be aware of what the the you know what the proper procedures are, um, so that it's done it's done uh, correctly. Now, now you mentioned certifications. What I mean is is you know obviously from the engineer's standpoint, one of the things that they'd want to put uh, in specifications, if it, you know if it existed, is is any sort of certifications or requirements. Is that more of a? Is there are more of the? Uh, I guess one, do they exist? And two, is it more of a? Uh, uh, you know, the, from the Radiant Professionals Association or from uh, manufacturers, that which which way is more typical? It's, it's, you know, really the, the, there isn't much in terms of industry, you know, kind of an industry-wide certification. It's really more of um, manufact- it's at, the, at the manufacturer level. So um, you're right, you know, we'll, we'll typically see specifications that call out for uh, manufacturer-approved certification, and uh, many of the manufacturers do offer that. Now, I mean, as, as far as a manufacturer goes, is it, you know, I mean, obviously with cer- certain systems, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, if you're talking about a roofing system or possibly a wall system, um, you know, there's there's site inspections that manufacturers do. Is that something sure. that, that is the same with uh, these type of systems? It is, yeah. And, and that's, you know, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for what, what, what other manufacturers do, mm-hmm. um, but it, it is very common. Um, certainly, it's, it's important that the, 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 uh, the installation is done in accordance with the, both the specifications and the manufacturer's recommendations. And so, um, it's very common to have um, kind of on-site on-site review, and that we commonly see that in the uh, requir- as a requirement in the specifications. Now, I, I guess uh, just give me a flavor. What what are some of the things that the contractors might might miss when they're they're installing these types of systems? Well, one thing to note is, um, you know, with the different types of, of products that are available, there there are different types of fitting systems that are there avail- uh, that are out there. Um, so it's important that the contractor understands how to how to make the fittings properly. Um, other things that they need to make sure that they, they understand how to, uh, how to lay, lay the tubing out and how to secure it. Um, there are a lot of different options as far as securing tubing um, into the slab, be it with, you know, we've seen wire ties, zip ties, um, staples, uh, rails, you know, there are knob mats, groove mats. There are a lot of different ways to do it, so the contractor just needs to understand um, how, you know, based on the requirements, based on the specifications, how that particular project needs to be installed. 
Now, you know, I mean, you mentioned the uh, like the groove mats and things like that. Uh-huh. I, you know, I got to I got to admit, you know, I mean, usually when you hear about radiant, whether it's heating or cooling, um, you know, it's like, oh yeah, there's the tubing. But you know what? We got this really you know neat time saving device, and I guess really that's what they are. These when you use like a groove mat or or, or yeah. some sort of you know system like that, that's you know a time saving device for the contractors to you know help them and 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 you know, getting it laid out quickly. Exactly. Yeah, because, you know, at the end of the day, you're looking at tubing that's embedded into the concrete. And um, there are a lot of, I guess we'll call them just kind of means and methods in terms of how to secure the tubing. And, and uh, a lot of contractors will, will go with that, you know, that type of solution in order to, to, keep, to help manage their labor. Now, I mean, is there either, any other, if there's, you know, contractors listening, if there's any other, you know, best practices that contractors can kind of uh, follow? Well, you know, one thing that, that we always strongly recommend is that um, on any project that they have a, a pre-construction coordination meeting, um, you know, a lot of things go into a slab. You know, we've got the, um, the, the radiant tubing in there, but we also have there's, there's rebar. Um, there are other supports. Um, many times we've got conduit, um, maybe, you know, um, other, you know, electrical boxes and things. Mm-hmm. So it's important that, that uh, as far as best practices go, make, make sure that, that we understand exactly what's going in the slab, um, you know, who's going to go where, uh, review the shop drawings, know exactly, you know, what the layout's going to look like and that you've got the right materials and everything on hand in order to, to lay that out. Um, you know, one thing that, that – um, one thing to know with, with PEX in general is, is PEX is, is a very durable material, um, and so – you know, they lay it out on the onto the slab, and the contractors walk all over it all day. It's 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 very um, it's very durable. Um, but at the same time, you know, if if you know, have got other trades in there, if they're welding around it, if, if you know, if, if for any instance they get any type of um, you know puncture in the in the tubing, um, that's you know obviously something that would need to be repaired. And so um, one thing that you always want to make sure you do prior to pouring the slab is to is to pressure test the pressure test the system. And do you do that typically with a, a water pressure test or an air test? It can be done with, with either. Now, if, if you determine that there's a leak and you find the leak, um, is, it, is it kind of, you know, do you, can you replace it? Is there some sort of uh, like heat welding that, goes, uh, that takes place, or do you have to re- re- replace the entire circuit? With a type of – when there's a puncture, um, you know, you can – um, basically, cut out the piece of tubing uh, that has a that has a puncture, and then um, you know connect a, a new new piece just as as a repair. Um, you know you want to be you want to be a little careful. Certainly, best practice is is not to have any fittings in that slab because the thought is that that a fitting you know if if you're going to get a leak anywhere, it it more commonly than not it's going to be at that fitting. Um, some of the manufacturer recommend that that if you do uh, have a, have to install a fitting in the slab that you wrap it. Um, obviously, you want to make sure that the, the fitting itself doesn't react with the, the concrete, so they're trying to protect that. Um, we use an um, engineered polymer and that, that doesn't react with concrete, so, so they're able to do that without having to wrap. Yeah, I got. I got to imagine, you know, at least from a, a kind of a retrofit application, and and, and uh, um, you know, looking at looking ahead, uh, I got to imagine that you know, kind of like rebar, where they have to X-ray the slab, is kind of knowing exactly where the tubes yeah. are. If uh, you're ever going to, you know, drill another hole in that slab, it's got to be critical. Yeah, you know what? It, it's uh, that's one of the things that often comes up, and from from kind of the owner perspective, is you know, if they've got a um, 
you know, we ran into this with the museum over in California. They were trying to install new displays, and they're, you know, they're drilling right into that concrete, and they and they hit tubing. Um, one of the things that that um, kind of another, you know, best best practice is, is we were seeing a lot of of uh, building owners where they'll invest in a uh, a thermal imager, or contractors do this as well. And um, depending on the where the slab is within the profile of that slab, um, excuse me, where where the tubing is within the profile of that slab, mm-hmm. you know, they they can crank up the the temperature on that, run hot water through it, and then by using a thermal imager, um, they're able to to visually see where the tubing is. Oh. Interesting. Uh, we, we see that we see that quite a bit. You know, if if they're you know they're trying to maybe put one new wall in, they, they want to kind of know exactly where they can and can't uh, can't drill down. Then um, that works very well. So I, I guess you know, speaking of the owners, what what kind of training is kind of required for uh, these types of systems? Um, there's not much training. You know, certainly it, it's important that. Well, let me take that back. It's important that the under, that they understand. You know. What the system is and how it works. Um, it's really more a question of managing managing expectations. Um, there's a project that that we were involved with. It was a, another museum project um, where they were just convinced that the rating cooling system didn't work, and um, went over there to 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 take a look at it. And and they and they said, look, and they they went and they flipped the switch, and then they walked over to the slab and said, see, it's not cold. <laughs> and so you know, obviously, you know, with a thermal mass, it, it's going to take time. It's not like your airside system where you you move the thermostat and you you know within two three seconds hear the the compressor go on and the fans start blowing. It's something that takes time. So as long as we can manage the expectations, they know how the system's supposed to operate. Um, then it ends up being you know very very easy system to manage and maintain. Now, I mean, I, I, one of the things that that pops into my head, obviously, with any sort of piping system, is uh, you know, getting debris, getting getting you know uh, these circuits clogged. Has that has that yeah. been a real issue? I mean, what what sort of precautions are are taken to prevent this? It, it is an issue, obviously, especially when we're talking about. Um, you know, relatively small diameter tubing. You know, you can have half-inch diameter tubing or even smaller in some applications. And then you've got the manifolds, with, you know, with the, the series of valves there that are opening and closing. So, yeah, debris is important. I guess, you know, in terms of best practices, you want to look at, at what you're doing, you know, doing it with your hydronic system in general. Um, you know, making sure you've got the strainers in place, making sure that you're managing the water, um, so you don't run into that that uh, that type of issue. Um, the one nice thing with um, with the cross-link polyethylene versus you know the metal pipe is it's not something that's going to be um, subject to any type of corrosion or material buildup over time. It, it, it remains relatively um, clean you know throughout its life, so you don't really run into those type of issues. Um, but certainly anything that that uh, you know when it comes to maintenance. Really, not much you need to do aside from managing your your you know your chilled water supply return and your your hot water supply return as you normally would for the rest of your system. Now, are there any sort of chemicals that uh, don't play nice with the uh, cross-link polyethylene? Um, there are some. You know, usually, really, what the in terms of the chemicals that are used for um, you know for your hydronic system, mm-hmm. um, the only one you really want to avoid is um, ethylene glycol. Um, that could react poorly with, with uh, the polymer um, fittings and, and, and such within the system. Um, aside from that, um, really nothing that, that's commonly used that would cause any problems. So what about the, uh, is the propylene glycol okay then? Yeah, propylene glycol is fine. Okay. 
Um, you know, I, I guess uh, what what kind of uh, feedback do you do you get for from these type of systems? You know, the feedback we've got has been has been very positive. You know, the radiant systems themselves, um, they, they they create very comfortable spaces. Um, the owners are seeing that that they they recognize you know kind of the environment they're able to create for the for their um, for their occupants, and then they're also seeing it in the energy savings. You know, we talked briefly um, earlier about how they're able to to shift that you know that fan motor horsepower over to pump motor horsepower, and so they're they're able to see both um, the comfort as well as the the energy benefits. And and again, as I you know mentioned previously, once they once they have the system dialed in. Um, it becomes relatively easy to manage. Mm-hmm. Uh, any uh, any other misconceptions that we uh, they haven't already covered? Um, misconception. Well, you know. Well, let me throw one thing out there. Is is oftentimes when we bring up the idea of radiant cooling, and uh, you know, we talked briefly about it earlier when we were talking about um, radiant ceiling panels. Um, uh, many times, uh, folks kind of associate that with chilled beams. And uh, it's important to, to just differentiate between the two because chilled beams actually, while they do have a radiant component, uh, rely more heavily on, on the uh, on convection. Um, so chilled beams, you know, when you talk about radiant, um, chilled beams really, it really isn't um, considered radiant cooling, mm-hmm. um, although that the two, um, two strategies do work uh, very well together. Um, as far as other misconceptions, you know, one thing, one thing that we hear quite a bit is, um, you know, you may you know, go to a building owner, you may go to a, a, an engineer, and, and, and they may make the comment that, you know, you know I, I like the idea of, of a radiant cooling, but they're just so slow to react. I don't know, you probably heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, the re- I guess this isn't really a misconception because the reality is they are very slow to react. Um, but but the, the misconception is the fact that that, that um, kind of that aspect of radiant cooling um, hurts the controllability of the system. When in actuality, you can almost make the argument that a radiant cooling system or radiant heating system, it reacts instantaneously. Um, And the reason you can make that argument is if you've got a slab that's, for instance, managed at, at say, 70 degrees, um, if it's 68 degrees in the space, um, and if you have a 70 degree slab, then you've got heat transfer, you know, warming, radiating. So you're you're warming. But once that the temperature in that space starts to elevate, let's say it's 74 degrees in this space, now that 70 degree slab is is in cooling mode. It's absorbing heat. So it does a lot to. Um, so you know, in terms of being slow to react, um, you can't. You know, you wouldn't expect a slab to, to you know to go from you know, 84 degrees to 68 degrees at the touch of a button, but at the same time, um, it does react um, accordingly to the the space conditions around you um, instantaneously. So you're able to to manage a lot of the fluctuations in the load by by managing, you know, kind of a moderate uh, temperature within your slab. I I got to imagine it's kind of, it's it's stabilizing, so to speak. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, Devin, I, I appreciate you having you on. Uh, anything else that you'd like to add before we uh, before we go? Um, well, you know, if anyone's interested in learning more about rating cooling, there, there just are a lot, of, a ton of great resources out there, either through RPA, through ASHRAE, through many of the manufacturers. Um, we actually just finished our rating cooling design manual, um, so there are other resources out there. And, and if <laughs> if it's okay, mm-hmm. uh, if I can give a, just a, a quick plug, oh, I'd like to encourage everyone to um, attend. We've got the upcoming 2013 ASHRAE annual conference in Denver um, coming up in June, and I, I recognize that 
that uh, if you're listening to this afterwards, this doesn't mean much to you. <laughs> but um, a lot of great seminars there. Um, you know, not only with this this seminar, certainly uh, the winter and the the other annual future annual conferences as well. But a lot of great seminars on high efficiency design. Um, I've got the privilege of being the program subcommittee chair for ASHRAE TC65, and we've got a program on uh, the fundamentals of uh, radiant cooling system design and construction um, that Wednesday. So. Um, Hopefully, we'll see a lot of people there at the uh, the conference. And um, thank you very much. Not a problem. And if anybody's interested, obviously, a lot of these sessions are pre-recorded or uh, recorded and yeah. are available for purchase uh, at the Ashray website. So, yeah. All right. Well, Devin, it's uh, it's uh, great to have you on the show, and uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out for us. All right. Well, thank you, and thank you for um, all you do putting together this podcast. All right, and we're back. Thanks again to our special guest, Devin Avalon, who uh, took the time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. It's great. Devin is 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 actually a listener to the show, and I really appreciate him uh, listening and promoting as well. So it was great to have him on and talk about something that he's very passionate about, which is radiant cooling. Uh, Also, if you want, just like Devin, if you want to pass it on, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and pass it on. I'd really appreciate that. Uh, If you want, you can actually give us a rating in iTunes if if that's how you listen to the show. Uh, You can go there and give us a a rating. Um, Actually, you know, I uh, had upgraded somebody last time. uh, I had the last episode. I had, uh, we had the subcommandante, Mitch, uh, was the person who actually left me the note. I, I upgraded him to a commandante, so uh, he's uh, moving up in the world. So I appreciate those kind words, Mitch, that you left for me on the web- on uh, iTunes. And uh, if anybody else would like to add your comments to him, uh, that would be great. Uh, also, um, <laughs> I, I just like the fact that in the middle of the show, I have my phone ring here in the in the studio, and uh, you know that's just kind of the way the way it goes here. We're live; we're um, can't really edit anything out, so uh, that's just the way it is. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you missed it, you might want to rewind it and play it again. But yeah, that's uh, I just point that out. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, if you have any show ideas, if you like this, if you, if you didn't like it, you can make comments, show ideas, anything you want. Uh, you can find me at matt at buildingx.co. Uh, if you want to just sign up for a newsletter that I issue on a monthly basis, that can be had at going to the blog at buildingx.co. Or if you want to interact with me on Twitter, uh, my handle there is at buildingx. All right, and of course, LinkedIn, if you want to connect with me, I love to connect with uh, listeners. That's, uh, I think that's a great thing to do. You can find me, Matt Nelson, PE, on LinkedIn. All right, again, thanks to the BCX, BCA, uh, the Building Commissioning Association, for sponsoring the uh, podcast. I really appreciate the support from them. Uh, and that's pretty much it for this week. So everybody, get back to work. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate each and every one of you. You make this thing just worth doing. So, as always, remember, know what you build and share what you know.